Welcome to Insightful Essence, the podcast that uses self-awareness from a neurological perspective. By learning the biological components of our mood, relationship problems, emotion management, and other things, we remove judgment and replace it with empowerment. I am your host, Rosalind Perez, mental health counselor and life coach. Let's get ready to rise above survival. Welcome everyone to another episode of Insightful Essence, and I am very excited to announce my first male guest. He's a yes, he has a professional background, um, very diverse and very robust. It spans business management, program design, team collaboration, along with therapy, crisis management, case management, and EMDR trauma processing. He has worked with diverse populations and has tackled a broad spectrum of issues, such as men issues, complications related to active retired military personnel, trauma, HIV, AIDS, relationship problems, psychiatric disorders, and substance abuse. So please help me welcome Clint Callahan. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Glad to be here. I'm glad to 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 uh, um, to have you here. I'm so excited um, to talk about something that it's very important. I have like so many male clients, and mm-hmm. a lot of times you hear so much about the issues that women struggle. And this is not to minimize uh, the issues yeah. that women have, but mm-hmm. men also have their own issues. So I definitely wanted to hear with someone with such a broad background and so many years of expertise. Um, yeah. I'd like to dive into that conversation. Sure. Well, yeah, like you mentioned, so I'm, I'm a licensed clinical therapist, uh, licensed clinical social worker. I've been a therapist for about 23 years. I've worked in pretty much everything, as you've mentioned. So there's really not much that makes me go, oh, wow, you got lots of problems because I've worked with all the problems, as you <laughs> mentioned. Um, one of the main things that I really like working with men about, though, is really just about feelings that's the big thing that men the men are not really are well they more now but when i was growing up not so much i'm 47 so i'm a child of the of the late 70s early 80s which was still the 50s kind of mentality you know if you you know if you're hurt rub some dirt on it don't cry all those kind of things and luckily in the last several years that's changed and that's i've been very gratified to see that that is and i've as the father of two young boys, I'm really trying to help them not not do that. Let them, I, when they're crying, I let them cry. When they're frustrated, I let them be frustrated. When they're angry, I let them be angry. I don't say, you don't have the right to feel that. Because one of the main, one of the main psychological reasons of why people think that that happens with boys is because boys are kind of told from the, like around five or six, now it's time to separate from your mom. Now it's time to separate from your parents. Now it's time for you to kind of grow up really fast because you need to be, you're the, you're the little man of the house kind of thing. And that is very damaging to young boys because they need to know that it's okay to feel like for a lot of my child. Yeah. It's a big burden. And for a lot of my childhood, I was, I basically was convinced I had three feelings, happy, angry, and sad. And usually it was angry. It wasn't happy and it wasn't sad because I want to sad, turn sadness into anger. You you can't do it any other way. So you can be happy or you can be angry. And the problem with that is having two emotions really limits the the color of the world, right? 
because really what we found is that there's about 87 different emotions. There's seven core emotions, but there is are 80 emotions that connect into those cores. But the thing that most people don't recognize, which I found really fascinating throughout the work that I've done, is that I think all emotions come from come from a primal fear story, from the biological fear story that we all carry as human beings, because it's literally encoded in our DNA with 185,000 years of hardcore survival. Because if you really think about it, it's been 5,000 years of written recorded history. And then through that, there was plagues, war, death, famine, all these different things still going on today. But then all of a sudden, all this stuff changed about 120 years ago, at least in America, with the Industrial Revolution. And then from that 120 years, then you fast forward about 70 years ago, computers kind of started coming around. And then 30 years ago, the internet really started coming around. And then 15 years ago, smartphones. And then apps about 10 years ago. And now we're into AI. So if you really think about it, Right now, if I wanted to, I could never leave this office again and I would be perfectly self-sufficient because I could do therapy this way. And then Amazon and Walmart Plus could deliver everything to my front door and I would never have to leave this office. You've never been in a society where it hasn't been a constant struggle to survive. That still happens in a lot of other places in the world, but in a lot of the first world, that is what's going on. But that also then creates all this extra time for us to think about where do I fit into this thing called life? What does this mean for me as a human being, as as a man, as a person, as a husband, as a father, as a brother, as all these different different labels that get Mm -hmm. stuck on you, right? How do you want to be? And for me, it was really hard because, so when I was born, I weighed one pound, 15 ounces. Wow. So, so back, so my lowest birth weight, I got to, I think, one pound, eight. So basically, I shouldn't be here. So that's really what it kind of comes down to. I've been told my whole life that I am a miracle by my parents because I should not be able to see. I should not be able to breathe. I should not be able to think. I should not be able to walk. I, And technically, I should be dead because of 47 years ago, they didn't know all the stuff that they know now, have all the technology that they have now. So that was the beginning of my story was I was told you have to do something profound and special because you shouldn't be here. That's a lot of pressure to put yes. on a kid. Yeah. And so, and then I went into school and then I was bullied a lot. I was bullied pretty much from, from probably second grade all the way up until 11th grade. What were the reasons for you to be bullied? And I, and I'm, and I want to know, <laughs> because I know that for men, this is something that, mm-hmm. It's experiencing a different way to have this pressure in society mm-hmm. since childhood. Yeah. What were so the I was bu- I was bullied. At least this my my interpretation of it. I haven't. I mean, I haven't really asked my bullies. Hey, so why did you bully me? <laughs> but in my so the way my bullying worked was individually, my friends were my friends, but as a group, I was the target. And I don't know. And I'm trying. I've always tried to figure out what that was. And so a big piece of that was. You know, part of it was, well, as you can see, not very, not very big. So I've always been fit. And I think in high school, I think soaking wet, I weighed like 110 pounds and I was six feet tall. So basically it looked like a giant stick. 
And so that kind of stuff, right? So I was bullied because I was too thin. I was bullied because I was emotional, because I was able to read other people's emotions. I cared about what other people thought. I cared about how they felt. And I basically think I've been a therapist my entire life. I think I'm genetically designed for this because that's how I looked at the world for my entire life. But yeah. because of those reasons, I was bullied. You know, I was okay at sports. I wasn't the best. I wasn't the worst. You know, these different kind of things where it was all these traditional male benchmarks. I really didn't have much desire to be a part, like be a part of a sports team or mm -hmm. do these different things or, you know, or really, I was a late bloomer when it came to dating. All these benchmarks that boys have yeah. just kind of just didn't stack up. So it was easy to target me. And so because of that, that then created anxiety, depression, people pleasing, and um, let's see, anxiety, depression, people pleasing. And the one other one, which I always forget, which I don't know why, because I lived through it, but I always forget it. So it's weird how that works, right? That happens. But that happens. <laughs> it happens. It's in my brain, but it's not coming out of my mouth. Eventually, it will come back. It'll be in there somewhere. But it's those kind of things that. So the anxiety manifested because I was bullied so much at school that I had somatic physical anxiety stuff where I was physically ill. So I missed lots of school for like mm -hmm. from like third to sixth grade. Um, I missed because I was um, physically yeah. sick. I, and, and just to go off from that, mm -hmm. because I believe that we all somatize. And if you don't mm -hmm. mind elaborating what the somatization is, sure. imagine that men somatize perhaps at a higher level because of the pressure of not expressing emotions. So mm -hmm. yeah. what, what do you mean by somatize? Sure, sure. sure. So, so somatization in psychological terms is when you swallow your feelings to the point where it creates physical manifestation in your body. For me, so the way the human body works is, I'll give a quick biological overview. So the way the body works is we have two types of fear response in our body. There's the biological fear response which is the adrenal system and the and the um the wow i'm having a brain i'm having a big brain fart right now <laughs> no, you're good. Uh, the parasympathetic the parasympathetic nervous system yeah. so what it is is when you somaticize things it is triggering your parasympathetic nervous system to keep it all internal which means your adrenal system which is designed to give you a fight or flight response is basically you're holding it in so you're not showing that you're anxious you're not showing that you're fearful you're not showing anything so you're holding all that stuff in and so what happens is when you do that your brain is saying there's physical danger all around me because that's what the parasympathetic nervous system tells you because 80 percent of what we experience in the world comes from the neck down so we but we often think oh it has to be up here but if i take care of this first then my body will follow and the answer is no you have to take care of your body first and then your brain and thoughts will follow because this is where all the information comes from. So through somatization, basically I was keeping all the fear and all the anxiety inside. And so that created stomach problems and gastric problems for me because adrenaline, when it's in your body, if you're not using it to fight or to run away, to go to your extremities, it stays in your gut, in your heart, in your lungs and in your brain. And the problem with that is when it's in your gut, it makes you feel like you have a sour gut, like you're going to have diarrhea, like all these different things. With your heart and lungs, it makes your heart beat really fast. And it makes it feel like it's going to like literally explode out of your chest. And with your lungs, you begin to breathe really, really shallow. Use about a 
third to a fourth of your lungs instead of the full capacity. And then your brain, the scary thing about adrenaline is adrenaline is designed to speed up your synapses, but that then gives you this perception of slowed time. And what they say is it's an average of about 10 times the speed when you're when you're super adrenalized. Because why being physically in the world would you want to be able to think 10 times faster if say a tiger was jumping at you? Yeah, it's good. You'd want that to look slow-mo so you can maybe duck or dodge or run or do whatever you need to do. But when we're stuck at our desk or stuck in these kind of scenarios, then it takes that one second of pain and stretches it to 10 seconds. So if you're sitting there anxious for a minute, you now feel it feels like 600 seconds, which is, which is that? Like 600 seconds is like 10 minutes. So So you feel like you're trapped for 10 minutes in that hell. And it's, it's, I just can help like listen to everything that you're saying and at the same time think of you going through all of this mm-hmm. at, at such a young age and mm-hmm. how many more men will go through this because oh, of yeah. their inability or not have mm-hmm. permission to express their Because they're not living up to whatever societal yeah. expectations of being manly is or yeah. because... They don't know that they're able to express and they can express things, which is why I've been so grateful seeing how things have shifted during this last several years with, you know, I mean, I think the me, I think the me too movement helped men as well. I think the, I think that the, the, the gen, the, the new gender identification stuff that's happening everywhere, that's helping men as well. I think all these things are helping all of us, not just men, but to be more cognizant that, Everybody is different. It's basically like I want to, it's like in high school, it's like I want to be different just like everybody else, right? It's that kind of thing. Where as you process through these things and you recognize these things. So that's where it started for me was it started out with it was I was holding it in and holding it in. It was making me physically ill. And then when I couldn't hold it in anymore, it went the opposite. Then I was just angry all the time. I became angry and mad and I would explode at a moment's notice. And so my parents didn't, my parents thought the physical stuff was medical stuff. So they'd take me to doctors and all this stuff. And they're like, no, he's fine. He's just got an upset stomach, all these things. I keep going for a couple of days because they didn't really think about the psychological effects because I didn't talk about it. And so then I got angry. And then when I was angry, my parents were like, okay, you're too angry. You need to go to therapy. So that's where I learned about therapy that, oh, wait, you mean there's words for what I'm feeling? There's different emotions instead of just these three things. Oh, wow. Wait, How liberating was that? Oh, wow. Wait, wait. there's techniques that I can use to calm myself down that is healthy. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. So I went to therapy for about a year and a half, two years, and I learned what feelings were. I learned different psychological tools. And one of my favorite psychological tools to teach people is, which I'll teach everybody right now, is it's something that I call my emotional management plan. This is what I do all the time to manage myself when I'm feeling really hyper emotional. And it can be any emotion. Like if I'm feeling too happy, too sad, too depressed, too angry, too frustrated, too something, that means that my body is telling me there's danger. Because like I said, our body interprets most stimuli in the world as a danger response, which then triggers the adrenal system and creates that process. So the way, first thing you need to do is you regulate your body first, and then your brain will follow. Because it goes body and then brain, not brain, then body. 
because you can change your thinking, but if your body still says there's danger, the adrenaline's not going to stop. So the way to change your body is you use a scientific process called box breathing. And what box breathing is, is you breathe in for four seconds and you hold your breath. Then you breathe out for four seconds and you hold your breath empty for four seconds. And you do that four times. And what that does is because if you were running from a tiger, you wouldn't stop and go, oh, I need to hold my breath and breathe and do all these different things. Instead, you would continually puff and puff and huff and puff and try and run to get away. But when you do that, if you're sitting at your desk and you just stop and you just do that breathing, what it does, it signals to your parasympathetic nervous system, there is no tiger. There is no physical danger. There is nothing coming after you, which then begins to slow your heart rate, which then slows down your, which then lets your breathing become nice and deep and relaxed, which then stops your gut from rolling around and stops the adrenaline from being in your brain. Absolutely. So that slows it down. Then the next thing you do is you work on the psychological component of fear, which is you have to write down the story that your brain is telling you because human beings are biological computers that run on story. That's what we do. We tell ourselves stuff every day about, okay, like here's an example. Okay, right now, I'm sitting at my desk. I get an email from my boss. Oh no, that means I did something wrong. That means I'm going to get yelled at. That means I'm going to lose my job, which means I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to lose my family. I'm going to lose all these things, which means I'm going to end up dead. That fast, it goes to death because that's what biology tells us that it's going to end in death. So you have to get that story out of your head because up here, you, it doesn't make sense because it's, it's in the emotional part of your brain. But when you get it out onto the page, then you go do a little bit of exercise for about two to three minutes, speed walk, push-ups, sit-ups, whatever you need to do, get that adrenaline going to your arms and legs. Absolutely. Get it out of your, yeah. get it out of your gut, get it out of your heart, get it out of your lungs, get it out of your brain, move it through your body. Then come back. Yeah. Then you come back and you read what you wrote by doing those four steps. And also, I'll send you the the uh, little poster I made so that you can send that, put it on the thing, and people can get a download of it. Absolutely. But it's those things that by doing it that way, you're now attacking this fear-based story that we all have from the psychological, the physiological, and the physical. So you're hitting it from all the main areas to reprogram your brain to say. Why am I doing this to myself? This doesn't make any sense. This story never makes any sense. Because when you ever you write down your fear story and you read it later, you look at it and go, seriously? That's what I was going to act on? That's the thing that was going to make me do this thing, which I knew would make things worse and not better? What? Why would I do that? And by doing that, the more you do that, the more you're able to then get a step back and recognize that our perception is our reality. The story we tell ourselves in the moment creates the next action or reaction that we do because really it's a formula. Your thoughts and your feelings equals your action or your reaction. And usually your thoughts plus your feelings and the action you do is usually not in a vacuum. You're usually around somebody else. So then that person reacts with the way they think and they feel about what you did, which then creates an action against you, which then creates the cycle that usually causes problems in relationships at work and out in the world, all those things, because human beings, 
we can't see the future, so we have to react to things. And that's the problem. What are the more common issues that you've seen that men has uh, come to you mm-hmm. to help them solve? Mm-hmm. Communication, recognizing that they have feelings, and being able to express those feelings in, a, in an appropriate way with a partner. That's one of the most common things. Men feel profoundly disconnected. That's why it's so easy for us to connect with people while playing like um, violent video games while having like a team of group of guys and playing like modern warfare, Call of Duty, those kind of things while playing sports and doing those kind of things by doing those because that's still very much baked into our DNA is to do those things. And so, but really it's expressing that you care about somebody or that you, or that you have that you, there's something, someone, something that someone said hurts you or those kind of things is one of the most common things because our story tells us if I'm vulnerable, I'm now vulnerable. And that vulnerability will lead to death. That's where men's brains go. Because you have to remember, historically speaking, what did men do for a living? We would leave, we would sit somewhere for hours and hours at a time, thinking about nothing, waiting for the moment for this thing to come that we had to attack and kill that would also try to kill us to bring back food to the rest of the group. That's what men have done and did for hundreds of thousands of years that's what's baked into us so when that's why for for most women when you come up to a man you and you see him just kind of sitting there kind of doing this like what are you thinking about like nothing like how can you be thinking about nothing because that's what literally our brains can do that because we've our brains are designed to sit and do nothing for for long periods of time Mm -hmm. which is a problem because you want to talk about stuff and we just want to be in nothing and nowhere because on average, I think they've found that men have about 10 to 12,000 words that they use in a day. Women have about 20 to 25,000 words they use in a day. That is a huge difference. Yes. Huge difference. Right? So for, and for most men, where do they use all their words at work? Most of their words are used up at work. So by the time they come home and let's say, you don't work and so you're at home and so you're with the kids and so your entire thing has been one or two or three or four syllable answers with these kids to try to get the kids to do what you want and so you have like like ten thousand words left over at the end of the day and you just want to have a deep conversation about what happened during the day what life is like outside of the home those kind of things right so what happens then he's sitting there going yep uh uh-huh sure these kind of things like that. And you know he's starting to get to the end of his words when he just starts to make grunting sounds because he's so burned out and so exhausted from using all of his words that he doesn't have any left over at the end of the day. So that's why it's one of those things where one of the common things I tell men is like, okay, here's this is how you do it when you come home. The first thing you do is you spend about two to three minutes just sitting in your car in the driveway before you pull into the garage. And you just sit there and you just breathe and you just be in your nothing box. Then when you come in, ask them how it was. Spend five minutes fully engaged in talking to this person. Even if you're exhausted, talk to your partner, hug your kids, do those things. And then excuse yourself and take five or 10 minutes to just kind of collect yourself. And then come back and be present for the rest of the evening. 
And then after the kids are in bed and life is calmed down and it's time for everything to slow down and get ready to sleep, then take 10 to 15 minutes to sit and have pillow talk with your spouse, with your significant other at night in bed in the dark, because it's been psychologically proven that in the dark, lying next to somebody, you can be emotionally vulnerable and you can have those kind of conversations because they can't see you. Because when you do this way, us being predators, because our eyes are in the front of our head, talking to somebody like this, especially for a man, our brain is like, okay, I can't be too vulnerable because this is a threatening position because we are looking at each other. That's why some of the best conversations you usually have with people is when they're sitting next to you and you're on a road trip because you're not looking at each other. You're just having a conversation and those kind of things. And that's the psychological reason behind it. Yeah, and that's why a lot of people these days prefer to break up via text message or email yeah. because they don't have to yeah. face the, those mirror neurons. I don't have to be influenced by yes. your reactions, your words, the tone of the voice, your facial expression, exactly. rolling your eyes, which it, it leads a mm -hmm. it leads to a neurological reaction in your brain. Yeah, because now you know, because now you know that you hurt them, because now you are feeling the same pain or you're feeling similar pain in a way that then makes it extra hard even though you know that for you in this moment it's the right thing to do but that pain is doesn't make it any less real right absolutely what yeah. would be the if you mm -hmm. had the opportunity to give men a message uh, that mm -hmm. could help them improve in their communication or their emotions mm -hmm. what will be that message mm -hmm. i would say one of the things that one of my my wife's a therapist and I'm a therapist. And so we have lots of good conversations, but we've also had to go to couples counseling several times. And one of the things that one of our couples counselors had us do is they had us do basically a 15 minute every evening conversation to start the process. And we ended up, it happened to be during the state of the union. So we call it our state of the union where we talk about what's going on in our lives and how we're doing with each other. And Basically, they say it's a very simple structure that you do when you do this kind of conversation with your partner is it's what's working, what's not working, what can we do together to fix what's not working? Because if you can do those three questions with each other, you can then create an open dialogue to begin the process of figuring out how are we not connecting? I think, you, I think understanding your partner's love language is key. So I think going online and doing the love, reading the love language book or doing the love language quiz to at least see that gives you a different perspective on what you're doing. Because for most men, their love language is I do, is I do things for you. Mm -hmm. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't keep mowing the lawn. I wouldn't keep fixing the stuff that breaks in the house. I wouldn't keep showing up and coming home every night. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't be here. How do you not know that I love you? Because for most women, that's not their love language. Their love language is not the do part. It's it's talk to me. It's hold me. It's touch me. It's you know it's it's buy me. It's some for some it's buy me gifts. For some it's these different things, right? And so it's recognizing what that is, so you can speak the same language. Because when you're not speaking the same love language, then these things that you think you're doing for your partner that expresses your love to them. All they see it is you're just doing chores. Big deal. I do those all day long. 
right? How does that mean you love me? So it's those kind of things. It really is. And it's recognizing that ultimately what it comes down to is perception equals reality. Like a couple of weeks ago, I came in after mowing the lawn and there was dishes in the sink. And I got just unreasonably angry. And I was like, fine, I'm getting a divorce. I'm leaving my kids. I'm sick of this stuff. I'm done. I have a massive overreaction. So I stopped. I took a breath. I went and did the dishes because it's an A to B process. Once it's done, it's done. So I stopped and I, la and I laughed at the end of it like, wow, that was a massive overreaction because my perception was I just got done doing all this work. I come in. There's more work to do. Where is everybody? Well, they were out doing chores and running errands and doing stuff that they were doing. And they told me that and I forgot. When they came back, I was like, oh, wow. Okay, that was a massive overreaction. Yeah. But we were playing like, our heads. You're doing this to me. You're doing this thing to me. And it's like, no, something is going on around. And the reason why I was so mad is because I was tired and I wanted to go take a shower and take a nap. And so what did I do after I was done with the dishes? I went and took a shower and I went and took a nap and everything was fine. But in that moment, the story was, you all are bad. I'm, so, I'm, I'm suffering. Look at all the stuff that's going on. None of you care. You're not even here. So I need to go do something about it. But luckily, I've had a lot of training and a lot of therapy and a lot of stuff that I recognize that like, wow, that was a giant overreaction. But how yeah. much do we do that? Yeah. How much does this story that we tell ourselves Absolutely. force us to go boom? Forces I love, us to explore. Yeah. I love that you that you added and and uh, and elaborated on the very very important component, which is the relationships mm -hmm. and the interactions. Mm -hmm. Because for men, connection and not necessarily for men. I mean, like for humans, mm -hmm. connection is mm -hmm. more of the, if not the most important. Mm -hmm. It's one of the most important things. And for men in particular, they tend to have a higher rate of suicide because mm -hmm. of loneliness. There are multiple factors mm -hmm. present. But it's one of the highest Loneliness ones, is one of the main factors present. So relationships main, are important. The thing about that is I've worked a lot with people with su through suicide. And I've also been, I've also, at one time I contemplated it myself and my mom also did commit suicide. So I've been through all aspects of suicide, mm -hmm. but it's one of those things that the thing that I've noticed with all the people I've worked with, my own thoughts and the stuff that my mom was feeling before she committed suicide was the same thought process. I'm a burden. Nobody needs me. I'm alone. The same three thoughts get wrapped up in our brain and it then skews the entirety of reality where your brain starts to say, the world would be better off if I was not here. And that's part of the issue, right? And a big piece of the of the we are more over, we are overconnected and yet disconnected simultaneously. Because all the platforms, all these things like this is amazing that we can do this, right? We wouldn't have met if it wasn't for this. But this also creates a false sense of connection because it's designed to do that. And then just like Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, all these things connect you, but you're also disconnected because they're designed using the deep psychological stuff in our brain to trick our brains that we are creating real connection. And that's part of the issue where we're overconnected, but we're disconnected, where we feel like 
we've caught up with all of the people because we liked their pictures and read their stuff and all these things. But really, then when that's done, you're isolated and you're alone and you feel bad. And it's like you don't have that connection because now the dopamine hit that that thing creates now dissipates. And then we go into dopamine withdrawal, which then makes us more depressed and feel more isolated and more alone. And it's amazing how we are more connected and yet more disconnected simultaneously than ever in the history of the world. Yeah, yeah, it's it's mind-blowing. It if you were to summarize a message, not mm -hmm. only to men, but to anyone, to your clients, in one statement, what will be what would you like for people to know mm -hmm. about quality of life, about life in general? What will that be? Yeah. And that it's a broad question, but yeah. So the reason why I, so I'm a therapist, been a therapist for 23 years and I started a life coaching business. And the reason why I started this life coaching business is because about after my mom committed suicide, I was burned out at work. I was exhausted. I was fried and I became disconnected from all areas of my life because that's what burnout is, is profound disconnection. And so I had to learn to take accountability and to use all the psychological tools I had to make these small changes in each of the four main areas of my life, which is how you use your time, how you stay and keep your connections active and enriching, how you manage your emotions, and how you recognize and actively work towards keeping your purpose the forefront of your mind and of your life. Because I think that in 15 minutes a day, which is just really 1% of your day, by working on those four things, you can change your life because that's what I had to do when I was going through that burnout. So I started doing a process where I, where every morning, this is what I still do today is I spend three minutes meditating. And then I spend two minutes journaling about what I want my intentions for the day to be. And then at lunchtime, I meditate for three minutes. And then I journal for another two minutes on, am I meeting those intentions I set in the morning? And then I do the same thing at night before bed where I meditate for three and I journal for two. And people are like, really? You only meditate for three minutes? What does that do? Well, if you can get into a proper quiet space and then just take time to breathe, three minutes literally feels like 300 minutes. It feels it's like long, forever. Yeah. But then writing and creating, crafting that intention to give you guardrails throughout your day then allows you to now recognize and focus on those things that are important to you each and every day, which then helps you to manage the story, to manage your perception. And if you can do these things, you can change your life in 100 days. And that's what I had to do by doing that, because I was so burned out. I was I had to decide what kind of husband did I want to be? What kind of father did I want to be? What kind of man did I want to be? What kind of therapist did I want to be? Who did I want to be? So I had to make that choice. And so I did that every day and I added in multiple different things and that's basically what this program is that I've created is about. It's about teaching people how to use these simple practical psychological tools to monitor those four aspects of your life to create the ability to know who you are, how you want to be, and the way you want to be and to stay on track with that and that it is possible. It does take work and the hardest thing is when you're burned out when you're feeling disconnected, the last thing you want to do is add one more thing. Even though you know it's good for you, you don't want to do it. So you have to figure out a way and you have to decide, is it worth, am I worth putting 15 minutes 
into me every day to begin to change my life. And the only person that can answer that is you. Absolutely. So I know that I have your all of your information, which is going to be mm -hmm. added in the description. But um, please tell us with the last minutes that we have a little more about your program. How can people find you? Where sure. are you on social media? Yes. So if you if you so you can so I'm offering a free 30 minute coaching call to your listeners. Uh, you have the information for my Calendly account uh, where you can do that and you can reach out to me. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram at smallchangesbigimpact.thenumber4 and the letter U. And I also post videos just discussing these different things in a variety of different topics for every day, just so that people can recognize that it doesn't take massive things to make big changes. That's the thing is everyone thinks, oh, well, if I meditate, I have to meditate for 30 minutes. Oh, if I want to make a change, I have to change everything all at once. And it's like, no, this is... This is the tortoise and the hare. We are all the tortoise. Slow yeah. and steady wins this race. Yes. You will not do it any other way because you can do the big flashy things for three days yeah. and then you then you don't follow up because you're now out of the, the created environment that let you have the big flashy three-day seminar. It's an everyday minute-by-minute minute process that you're choosing to do. And once you do that, you can make big changes because I, I spent 30 years of my life being having imposter syndrome, being a people pleaser and just being depressed and anxious. And now for the last 10 years, I've been less of all those things. I'm in recovery from all those things because I take the time every day to manage myself because if I don't manage myself, nobody else will. And that's the best advice I can give you. You are in control of yourself. If there's any lessons I've learned in life, it's, it's we all make it up as we go along from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed every day. And you are the author of your story. So if you don't like the way your story is being written, take a step back and figure out how it. you can rewrite it and yeah. rewrite it. I love you're it. the boss. That's the best thing about it. I you are your own boss. Yeah. We, we, I don't think we are in the, uh, we don't have, we don't give ourselves permission. We've heard the word no so much in our lives that we, we yeah. don't give ourselves permission, but you're absolutely right. Thank you so much. This has been so inspiring and I will add this information all into the description for anyone of my listeners to have available. And thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to be here. And I look forward to doing this again. Yes, absolutely. We can talk about like so many other different things. I got all kinds of stuff stuck up here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the podcast, please don't forget to hit subscribe, share with others, or leave a rating and review. I also invite you to join my Facebook group for additional helpful content. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.